of Medicine today. This is John Murphy. It's my pleasure to welcome to this podcast Dr. Brian Brown. Dr. Brown is a research professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh. He also has an academic affiliation with Cornell University, and he's a member of the McGowan Institute. Uh, Dr. Brown, welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. So, what I asked Dr. Brown to join us today for was to discuss an affliction known as TMJ. And I'll begin by asking him to define what this acronym is. TMJ stands for temporomandibular joint, and it's the joint between the jaw and the skull. And it consists both of the, the mandible and the skull, as, as well as a, a band of cartilage, which, which separates those two bones. So that's the joint, but what's the problem that you and some of your colleagues are trying to address? TMJ disease and TMJ disorders really encompass a large spectrum of clinical problems. For patients who suffer a temporomandibular joint disorder, this could be anything ranging from popping or clicking of the joint when they open their mouth up through limitations on how far they can open their mouth, significant pain, and really these disorders, the the more serious they get, the greater the impact on quality of life. If you can imagine not being able to move your jaw, you can't eat, you can't speak, and sometimes associated with significant pain. Is this a very prevalent disease? It's quite prevalent. Depending on on what you include as a symptom of a temporomandibular joint disorder, it can be anywhere from 10 to 30 million people per year who suffer some sort of TMJ disorder. That's in the U.S. alone. One of the the interesting things about this disease is that it it affects a pretty specific population of people, and that's women. 90 to 95 percent of those who suffer TMJ disorder are women between the ages of 18 and 40. So let me ask from a lay perspective to perhaps elaborate on the disorder. I think of people who have joint problems of the knee where there's essentially a failure of the cartilage. Is that in any way analogous to this joint problem that you're describing? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. So the, the temporomandibular joint is a unique joint in the body. It's, it's got more range of motion than any other joint in the human body. And so the problem with the, the temporomandibular joint, though the cause of the disease is not exactly known, can be inflammatory. It can be a, a problem of displacement of the cartilaginous disc, which sits between the jaw and the skull. Once that cartilage becomes displaced, it really inhibits the fluid motion of the jaw. It can be associated with pain. There can be pain without problems related to the cartilage as, as well. So it's, it's quite a complex joint and a, a complex etiology in terms of the disease process. How does a physician treat this now? Much depends on what symptoms the patient is experiencing. If it's just a little bit of popping or clicking or a minor amount of pain, a physician may treat the patient by prescribing anti-inflammatory medications. And as we progress in terms of the seriousness of the treatment and invasiveness of the treatment, patients might undergo physical therapy. They might get what's called arthrocentesis, so a washing out of the joint with an anti-inflammatory 
medication, they might get an arthroscopy to go in and look at the disc. And as these patients progress in the seriousness of, of the disease, they may need to have a discectomy, so a removal of the cartilage that sits between the two bony structures. And again, as we continue, if there's a pathology of the bony structures, patients may need a full joint prosthesis. And if you can kind of envision uh, full hip replacement, it's something very similar to that scale to fit the joint between the jaw and the skull. So it's a pretty invasive procedure for major cases of this affliction. Right. It's it's a very major procedure, and, and one of the big problems in this area is really for those patients who need to have the meniscus removed. And the problem for these patients is that there's really no standard procedure for replacing the meniscus once it's been removed. And there have been a number of things that, that have been tried. Those include polymeric implants, Proplast Teflon, which was used in the late 80s into the early 90s, had some very serious problems with those implants, and they're no longer recommended for these patients. Some will do a a dermal or a fat graft into the joint just to have some interpositional material between the jaw and the skull so that the two bones basically are not contacting one another. However, the problem with those treatments is that those tissues are often resorbed by the body and you're back to kind of square one. So I know that you're trying to use some tissue engineering concepts to provide an alternative approach to solving this problem. Can you give us an overview of that, please? Sure. What we're doing is really focused in the spectrum of disease on those patients who will need a discectomy, so removal of the cartilage between the joints. And what we've developed is a device composed of what's called extracellular matrix. And so extracellular matrix has been used in a wide variety of tissue engineering and regenerative medicine applications. It's what we would call an inductive scaffold for tissue remodeling. And and what we mean by that is that by placing the material and allowing it to degrade, it recruits the body's own cells to form a new site-appropriate and functional tissue in the site of placement. So we're using extracellular matrix, which has been formulated into a device which is the appropriate shape and size to fit into the TMJ. That device we've tested now across three large animal studies, And what we find is that following removal of the meniscus, if we place this device over the course of anywhere between three and six months, we get formation of new functional host tissue, which is is very similar to the normal and native cartilage. So is this a less invasive procedure than some of the earlier techniques you introduced to us? It's not. So this procedure is intended to follow a discectomy. So this is targeted towards a patient who's going in to see a surgeon and who's having that meniscus replaced. So it's not a full joint prosthesis. It's not that invasive, but it is still an invasive procedure. And this device has been developed so that it fits very well into that surgical procedure as it's already performed. So it's, it's basically an off-the-shelf device. It doesn't require any seating with cells or any special conditioning. The surgeon can take it and place it into the joint where the meniscus has been removed. 
So this is one procedure that removes the damaged meniscus and puts this new device in. Yes, it's one procedure. The meniscectomy is performed, and then the device is placed into the joint immediately thereafter. And what's the expected recovery time? In our animal models, what we've seen is new tissue formation as early as one month, and that this progresses out until about six months. And and what we're seeing anywhere from three to six months is a tissue that really looks like a normal, healthy cartilage within the joint. So it, it seems to happen pretty rapidly. So this is certainly some very exciting results, and I believe I recall that you have a number of funding sources that are supporting this endeavor. Is that correct? That's correct. So here at the McGowan Institute, we and our colleagues, Dr. Stephen Badalak, Dr. Alex Almarza, Dr. Bill Chung, we've been working on this for about six years now. Originally, the project was funded by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, now funded by an R01 grant from the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research. And we've also now received some funding from the Wallace Coulter Foundation, which is really geared towards clinical and commercial translation of this research that we've been doing. So many of the guests we have on this podcast series share experiences where the potential clinical availability is many, many years downstream, but I gather from what you just said that the potential availability of this on a clinical basis isn't that far away. Right. So as I mentioned, we've been working on this for about six years and have now done three large animal studies. We're we're now completing a very large study in pigs, which is considered to be the gold standard model for TMJ meniscus research. This is something that we've been doing in partnership with the Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine. And as we come to a close of that study with positive results, we're really excited about the potential for translating this into to human patients. Because we're using a material, and, and that material is extracellular matrix, which has been used commercially and FDA-approved in human patients for many years now, that helps to speed some of our translation to the clinic. So if I were to suggest that perhaps in a couple of years that Assuming continued progress and success, this might be available for clinical trial. Is that a reasonable presumption? That's reasonable, and, and we're really hoping to see this in the next one to two years in human patients. Uh, Dr. Brown, this is a, certainly an exciting project, and uh, as with most regenerative medicine studies, they typically tend to be multidisciplinary endeavors. Can you share with us some of your collaborators and uh, what they bring to this particular study? That's a great question, and since the beginning of this project, we've been working with the Department of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery here at the University of Pittsburgh. Dr. Bill Chung has really been great as a clinician on this project and and really advising us both from a clinical perspective as well as a, a practical perspective to make sure that the device that we've designed is usable and intuitive for a surgeon. Our other colleagues include Dr. Steve Badalak here at the University of Pittsburgh and McGowan Institute, who is an expert and really the pioneer in the extracellular matrix technology that we're using, and Dr. Alex Almarza in the School of Dental Medicine and the Department of Bioengineering is an expert in the area of TMJ meniscus engineering. I'd also like to say that we've developed now a, a collaboration with Cornell 
College of Veterinary Medicine, and this has really been great for us in, in terms of being able to do a lot of very complex and, and difficult large animal studies with imaging such as MRI. So, Dr. Brown, I appreciate you sharing this exciting story with us. We'll post on the podcast website a link to some additional material relative to these particular studies for those who may be interested. So, as we conclude this podcast, I'd again like to thank you for sharing these exciting results. Remind our listeners that we welcome suggestions. You can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. And I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute who sponsors these podcast series for providing this opportunity to learn of Dr. Brown and his colleagues' exciting work. Until we meet again, thank you for listening. Thank you.